0: Good morning. morning. Some of you might be like, what did I just watch there? Well, that's the introduction to the new series that we are in called Asking for a Friend. And in this series, we are addressing some questions that maybe you wouldn't just outright ask somebody. But before I get into the message for this morning, I just want to say thank you so much to everybody who helped put on Open House Sunday just this last week. That was a Sunday where we were encouraged to invite a lot of people. We had food. We had inflatables. But it's not just about food and games for families. And you can always count on that Sunday to have a message about how to have a relationship with Jesus for all of eternity. And that's why we do what we do and your contributions to help putting that on. It's for the mission of spreading the gospel. And I just ask that you would continue to pray that the message that was preached last week would continue uh, to just work in the hearts of people who heard it and that God would continue to change lives through his word. So thank you again to everybody who put that on. And this morning, we are getting into the second message in this series that we've been in. Last week, we addressed the question, when does God give up on you? And this morning, we will be answering the question, can you follow God and still have doubts? Can you follow God and still have doubts? And over the time that I've been married, I've realized that I'm not a very trusting person. And it's not because Gabby is not trustworthy, but I have spent my adult life kind of doing things on my own. I know my strengths, I know my weaknesses, I have my own way of going about things, and it has been a pretty big adjustment to add somebody else to my life with strengths and weaknesses and her own way of going about things. And I've been learning how to trust her because I've been told relationships are built on trust. But easier said than done. When we were on our honeymoon, we were in Yosemite National Park, and we were hiking along the road trying to get to the gift shop area and that path split off into a Y. And so I didn't know where we were going. So I pulled out this map and I'm trying to figure out directions and I told Gabby, we need to go this way. She tells me we need to go this way. And so we talked about it and through our conversation, I realized that we were using very different reference points to come to our conclusion. I was using the map, but when I asked her why she thought we should go this way. She told me that she watched a man walk the other way and then turn around and come back. And so that's why we shouldn't go that way. And I was like, what? You're basing our decision on that? You don't even know where that guy wanted to go. And so this was a very foundational conversation in our marriage. And we decided we all have different strengths and weaknesses and that Gabby should just trust me with the navigation. And there's other things that I'll trust Gabby with. Like grocery shopping. Well, that's easier said than done because I went grocery shopping with her a few weeks ago and this was after we had a conversation about how much money we have to spend on groceries. Now, I've been doing my own grocery shopping for the last few years and I have my way of doing things and now I had to just watch her with her way of doing things and I'm pretty sure I should have just stayed at home because (laughs) the whole time I'm like, why are you buying that? Do we really need that? Wouldn't it be cheaper if we got this instead of that? And she's like, "Ah, just trust me with this. And so from that, I learned that there is nobody that I trust more than myself. And (laughs) yeah, (laughs) and it's not because I'm right all the time, but I feel like when I trust myself, I have this sense of control, like my actions and my choices equal this outcome. And sometimes it's hard for me to give up that sense of control to somebody else and trust that they will reach this outcome. And I don't think this is only hard in marriage and just other relationships. I think sometimes it is hard to trust God that his outcome and his timing is best and maybe sometimes we have trouble trusting that God's ways and his timing is perfect. Or we, we've gone through some hard times in our lives and we wonder, is God really caring? Is God really loving if he would let us go through this? Or we read about some things in the Bible that are a little bit tricky to wrap our minds around. And we're like, can we really trust God's word Can we really trust that his ways are best? And so it all brings us back to this question of, can we follow God and still have doubts? And that's a question that we'll be answering first from Hebrews chapter 11. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We will also have it up here on the screen for you to follow along. Now Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to as, The Hall of Faith passage, not the Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith, because it gives example after example of people in the Old Testament who trusted God and lived in faith. And I think Abraham is like the number one example in the Bible of somebody who lived by faith. And so we can read about him in verse 8. It says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Now let's pay attention to all the times we hear the words, by faith. And then in the next verse, it says, "...by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God." And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who who had made the promise. I heard the words by faith three times in that passage. And Abraham's kind of put up on this pedestal as a great example of a man who lives in faith. But what we just read in Hebrews here It's really just a snapshot of Abraham's life. In fact, I think it's more of like a highlight reel. And it's just showing the best examples of the time that Abraham lived by faith. But if we were to take a look at the bigger picture of Abraham's life, we would see that there's a lot more twists and turns and even moments of doubt. And this morning, I don't want to just take a look at this highlight reel of living by faith. Because some of you here in this room are maybe wrestling with some doubt in your lives. This morning, I want to turn to the fuller picture of Abraham's life and look at how a man who wrestled with doubt could be listed in a passage like this as somebody who lived by faith. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 And we are going to be skipping around to a bunch of chapters here this morning to kind of get the picture of what's going on in Abraham's life. And just a heads up, we're going to be reading about this guy named Abram and his wife named Sarai. All right, there we go. That's the introduction for Abram and Sarai. Now, you might be like, who is this? Abram and Sarai. Well, it's actually Abraham and Sarah that we just read about in Hebrews chapter 11, but they go through a name change later in the story. So anyways, let's get into it. In verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the Lord comes to Abraham, and he just kind of has this conversation with Abraham. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we can just think that it is totally normal for God to talk to people. But even in biblical days, it really wasn't that normal for God to just talk to somebody. And if I'm not mistaken, the last person that God had talked to was this guy named Noah. Maybe you've heard the story of Noah and the flood. Well, that was 367 years before God talks to Abraham at this time. That's 367 years of silence. And then all of a sudden, God shows up to Abraham. And God shares with Abraham that he has this very special plan for his life. And he shares three promises that he has in store for Abraham. And it's not because Abraham deserved God's attention or he was anything special like that. But what made Abraham special is that God chose him. And so here's the three promises. God promised Abraham a land, not only for him to live in, but for his descendants to live in. God promised Abraham lots of descendants. Kids, grandkids, great-great-grandkids, people who would populate the earth years and years to come. And then the third promise is, is not as straightforward as the other two promises. And that is that God would bless other nations through Abraham. And Abraham didn't even see this promise fully play out in his lifetime. And we really don't understand the fullness of this promise until we read about it in the New Testament. But let me show you how this one works out by showing you kind of the family tree of Abraham here. So we got Abraham at the top and we have his son, His grandson, his great-grandson, and his great-great-grandson's all here. And there's some gaps in this family tree, but I just want to show you the bigger picture. Is that from Abraham's descendants, you have King David. And from the descendants of King David, eventually comes Jesus. And through Jesus and what he did on the cross, God offers salvation to anyone who would believe in Jesus for forgiveness. And this gift isn't just limited to Abraham's family. It's extended to people of any nation in the entire world. And that is the way that God promised that he would bless other nations through Abraham. But in order for this to happen, Abraham needed to have descendants. He needed to have a son because at this point in his life, he did not have any children And so here God comes to him. He gives him these three promises. And then he tells Abraham to pack up all of his stuff and move away to a distant land that he had never been to before. So let's see how Abraham responds to all of this. In verse 4, it says, So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. They took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. So God tells Abram, All right, pack up all your stuff and move to this land that you've never been to before. And Abraham wasn't like, All right, just give me some time. Let me pray about it. Let me talk this over. Abraham was like, All right. Say no more. And so he packs up all of his stuff and he moves away to this distant land. But this isn't as simple as just packing up like a family of six people and going on a road trip. This was a pretty big operation here because he basically had this family business. He had people who took care of his sheep, people who took care of his cows, and people who just lived under his authority. And so to pack up everything that he had and move to a distant land would be like packing up the whole operation at p g and moving somewhere else. And it wasn't just Abraham and his wife and their workers, but he also brought with him his nephew named Lot and his wife. But before we go on any further, I've got a Bible trivia question for you. What character in the Bible knew the most people? It was Abraham because he knew a lot. Yeah, his nephew's name is Lot. All right, just had to make sure that you were still with me. Second observation from this passage is that at this time that God promises descendants to Abraham and tells him to move to this other faraway country, Abraham is 75 years old. And his wife is 10 years younger than him. She is 65 years old. And they don't have a child. And so it would have been pretty impressive if God had given them a child in the next year. But that actually isn't what happened. Even though Abraham lived in obedience to God and he moved to this faraway land, he had to wait on this promise to have a child. And year after year after year went by. And still... Abraham didn't have a child. Now let's turn in our Bibles to chapter 15. And this is where we see that Abraham starts to doubt after a while. In verse 1, it says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abraham's starting to doubt here. Time goes by. He doesn't have a child. And so he's thinking about plan B's. He's like, all right, if I don't have a son to carry on my name and inherit all of my stuff... Then when I die someday, I am going to have to give my entire estate and all of my possessions to this guy named Eleazar. He's not even part of Abraham's family. He's just one of his workers. But then God comes to Abraham and reassures him that his promises will come true. In verse 4 it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So in Abraham's moment of doubt, God comes to him and says, No, 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 don't worry about it. Even though you don't have a son just now, I want you to know that my promise will be fulfilled and you will have descendants someday. So many descendants that he's using like the stars in the sand as an illustration of how many great, 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 great grandkids Abraham would have someday. And this was like a faith booth for Abraham. He's like, all right, replace my doubt with faith in God. God will keep his promises. We're all good to go. And then more time goes on. And still, Abraham doesn't see this promise of God come to fulfillment. And so, he believes that God's timing just isn't working out. And he and his wife take matters into their own hands. And his wife comes up with this idea. This is what we see in chapter 16 and verse 2. It says, So she said to Abram, this is his wife, The Lord has kept me from having children, Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And so 10 years go by. They still don't have a child, and so... Here's what Abraham does. He marries this other woman who's younger, and he has a child with her. He's like, all right, God isn't coming through on his time, and let me just take matters into my own hands. But instead of really solving this problem, Abraham just makes a mess of things because he's not doing it God's way. And so now he has two wives. One of them he has a child with. The other one has been promised a child, but she has yet to have that child And they do not get along. And so now they have this messy family situation because Abraham just took matters into his own hands and he removed God from the equation. And I think the lesson in this for us is that doubt is dangerous when it takes God out of the equation. And I don't think it's always wrong to sometimes question God or sometimes we all have moments of doubt. But where doubt is so dangerous is when we come to false conclusions about who God is. When we believe that God won't follow through on his promises, or we believe that God doesn't really know what's best for our lives, actually we know what's best. Or there's so many hard things that have gone on in my life or in the world, and God hasn't stopped that, so maybe he doesn't care. Or maybe God is just incapable of dealing with some of these things. And I think that Taking God out of the equation means that in the times that we are doubting, in the times that we're going through some difficulty, that instead of turning to God, we turn to our own solutions. And maybe some of you here this morning have been single for a while and you're looking to get married and settle down and you have good intentions of marrying a Christian who has similar values to you. But as time goes on, Somebody like that just doesn't step into your life and you feel like there's not a a lot of options of good Christian people out there. But there's a lot of options and people who aren't following Jesus and maybe don't have the same values that you have. But you think to yourself, I would rather marry somebody who's not a Christian than to go the rest of my life being single. Instead of trusting that God's way is best and trusting in his timing. Or others of you are looking at your finances and your budget is pretty tight, so you're thinking about how you can make it and you know that, that God's, well, your money is God's money and, and God wants you to, to give a portion of your money back to him, whether that's through church or something else like that. But you're thinking, you know what? I just can't make it if I give any of my money to God. I'd be better off just holding on to it or investing it and so instead of doing things God's way and trusting that he will provide, you just hold on to every dollar that you can. Or maybe you've had a loved one in your life pass away or some other really tough situation in your life. You are faced with this option. Do you run to God for peace and comfort? Or do you turn to some other coping mechanisms that are just not healthy or not God's way of dealing with hard times in our lives. And so it's normal to go through seasons of doubt, but it all comes back to, do we turn to God? Or do we formulate false conclusions about God and then live like those false conclusions are true? Because that's what happened in Abraham's life. After enough time went by and he didn't see God's promise come to fulfillment, he must have come to the conclusion that either God's timing is not best or God was just incapable of providing the fulfillment to that promise. And so Abraham just kind of did things his way instead of trusting God. But even in his doubting, God was still at work even though Abraham didn't see it. And then fast forward 14 more years. So this is 24 years since the time that God promised them a child. God comes to Abraham. And in chapter 17, and in verse 15, he says, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man who is 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So this is the point in the story where Abram's life gets changed to Abraham. And it's believed that the name Abraham means father of many. But that can sound like a silly name for somebody who only has one son, and even that one son wasn't part of God's plan for him. And then Sarai's name is changed to Sarah, which means mother of nations. It's kind of a silly name for someone who is like 89 years old, And still doesn't have a child. And in those moments, it could be so easy for Abraham and Sarah to just question that God is even there for them. Maybe they're like, God forgot about us. Or God's just not even capable of giving us a son because we're just so old now that, that we can't have children. But even in their doubting and even in the waiting, God was still up to something, and this was all part of God's plan. I just imagine what the story would be like if God had given them a son right from the start. If God had given them a son right from the start, then they wouldn't have gone through this period of waiting and doubting, but which also was a period of learning to trust God. And I think that that anticipation to have a son built up an appreciation for when it would finally happen and when God would prove his faithfulness. Because in the end of the story, Abraham and Sarah finally have a son. And I think that when you have a son at 100 years old and 90 years old, you can't say that God was not in it. God deserves the credit for something like that because that's just not normal maybe the time of waiting just set up that moment of God proving his faithfulness in their lives. And I think the same is true for us is that God is not distant in your doubts. And just because you're going through some hard times or maybe wrestling through some doubt, it doesn't mean that it's pushing God away or that God is distant. Because even in those moments, God is right there with you. And the Bible says that God will never leave you nor forsake you. It says that God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. And even in the waiting, God is there. And how many of us have prayed to God for something and not seen an answer? And so we keep praying and we keep praying. And it could be years that go by and we just don't see that answer to our prayers And I hope that none of us have to wait 25 years like Abraham and Sarah. But I think that sometimes God brings us through this period of waiting so that we can fully appreciate the answer that God gives. And even in the waiting, it doesn't mean that God's answer is no. Maybe his answer is just not yet. And it's part of his perfect plan and his perfect timing. And it kind of blows my mind that a man like Abraham, somebody who's wrestled with so much doubt, is mentioned in the hall of faith in Hebrews as somebody who is a good example of faith. And I think that what we can learn from that is that faith is not the absence of doubt. It's the means to push through the doubt. Faith is the difference between giving into the doubt, him pushing through it. And Abraham and Sarah, even though they went through some seasons of doubt, they pushed through that when they put their faith in God's plan, in His character, and in God's perfect timing. And in that Hall of Faith passage in Hebrews chapter 11, it begins with these verses. It says, Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. See, even Abraham and Sarah were commended for trusting God and packing up all of their belongings and moving away to this foreign land, not even knowing where they were going. And Abraham and Sarah were commended by God for trusting that he would come through on his promise and give them a son, even when they were pretty old for having kids. And I think about our lives and our stories, and would our stories have a place in Hebrews chapter 11 and fit right in with all the other stories of living by faith. And just because we wrestle with doubt, it doesn't mean that we are disqualified from living in faith. And even Abraham, as like a hero of the faith, struggled with doubt.